Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. As always, thank you for joining me. I've been doing these podcasts for a little bit more than a year now. We're on episode 57 today. And I look at the numbers. I look at the data. The podcast distributors and and hosts can give you quite a bit of data. And I look at all of that. I look at, you know, how many people listened, when they listen, where they're from. And ever so often, I do an episode and it just hits for reasons that I can't quite explain, whether it's the title, the theme, the day, whatever. Um, there's a lot more viewership, a lot more people listening, people listening for longer, all of those sorts of things. Excuse me. There are also times when the exact opposite is true. When I come up with an episode and publish an episode that I think is good, is going to resonate with people, and for one reason or another, it just doesn't. Last week, we started a two-part discussion about Narcos Mexico and looking at things in Narcos Mexico that are portrayed in a way that maybe people believe to be true, but aren't true, or aren't completely true, or there's more nuance, whatever the case may be. And I thought that was going to resonate with people, and and uh, I looked at the data this last week, and it didn't. No idea why, and that's okay. Um, so in my position, you have kind of two choices. One is you can pretend that you didn't say it was going to be a two-parter and just move on. Or, as we're going to do today, you go ahead and you finish the second part and maybe change the title a little bit and the description a little bit. Um, but go through it, finish up the discussion, and then move on to something next week and let the the chips fall where they may, so to speak. So we're going to go ahead and finish up the Narcos Mexico discussion. But before we do, I want to make sure that we're all clear on exactly what we're trying to do. The point here is not for me to criticize the creators, the directors, the writers, the producers of Narcos Mexico. Narcos Mexico does not pretend to be a documentary. It does not pretend that everything in it is true. They make that very clear at the beginning. For that reason, I give them a lot more latitude than I would other things, books, TV series, alleged documentaries that claim that everything in there is true. And that includes, but is certainly not limited to, the last narc. But, but because Narcos Mexico was so well done, and I do, I think it was very well done, because it went to a lot of people, I think there's a lot of facts in there, and I'm using air quotes, that people believe to be true that aren't, or are not completely true. And I think that that's important. Let me give you an analogy to uh, an Oscar-winning movie. Maybe you saw Argo, which is the story of the Iranian Revolution and certain Americans that escaped the consulate were held um, in secrecy 
for a, a period of time. And then Tony Mendez from the CIA developed an operation to go in and get them out. Okay. I really enjoyed the movie. I was flying a lot when it came out or shortly after it came out and it was always on the planes that it was on. So I probably watched it 10 times, if not more. There is a scene at the end or towards the end where this group of Americans is trying to get out. They're portrayed as a, or they're pretending they're a film crew. They're going to the airport in Tehran and they almost get caught. The plane's taking off. Police are chasing after them. And to me, it's a great scene because we know they get out and yet our hearts are still beating faster. We're still wondering, how are they going to make it? Are they going to make it? Oh, thank goodness they made it. And yet we all already knew they made it because it happened a long time ago. Apparently, that scene never really happened in real life. They basically got out of the airport without a whole lot of issue, concern, or anything else. So do I blame the makers of Argo? Do I blame the director? Do I blame the writer? Do I blame Tony Mendez, who wrote the book that a lot of it was based on and then served as a consultant on the movie? Of course I don't, because they didn't say it was factual. But, but how many people, having watched that movie, believe it to be true? And that's the point with Narcos Mexico. And more importantly, there still, as we've talked about over and over and over, there still are unanswered questions with respect to the Camarena case. There still are people alive who were involved in that set of circumstances, those events leading up to and immediately following Agent Camarena's abduction. And the number of people out there continues to decrease, but probably is more than you might think. If we want to get answers to some of the remaining questions, if we want to continue to dig into the facts, it's important to understand what we might perceive to be true based on what we saw in Narcos Mexico and distinguish that from the actual facts. So again, this is not an effort to criticize Narcos Mexico as much as it is an effort to inform. And we're going to talk about four or five key areas. We're going to do it fairly succinctly. Uh, a lot of these things are things that we've talked about in the past, so I don't want to belabor points, but I do think that this is important. So first place we're going to talk is we're going to look at the actual kidnapping itself and the way it's portrayed in the last narc. And there's a couple of nuanced points. Nuance doesn't mean nitpicky. Nuance doesn't mean insignificant. It means subtle points that I think are important to know. Number one is how Camarena's truck is depicted to be parked. One of the key facts that we know from the case 
is that the morning of the kidnapping, Jaime Kirkendall parked behind Agent Camarena's truck. He parked behind the truck in such a way that Agent Camarena wouldn't have been able to immediately leave or easily leave when he left the American consulate to go to his truck to go meet his wife for lunch. So rather than the kind of straight-in parking represented in the show, his was more sideways, and that's why his avenue or his exit was blocked by Agent Kirkendall. Something else that's very important, and this is very nuanced, is the path that Agent Camarena took. And to me, one of the major remaining questions in my mind is the path that Agent Camarena took leaving the American consulate to go to his truck. And remember, his truck is in front of the Camelot on Libertad to the west of Progresso. Okay, Progresso runs north-south. Libertad runs east-west. That's where his truck is. Why is that important and why is it an unanswered question? Many of the reports from alleged witnesses and the descriptions from alleged witnesses contradict each other on the route that Agent Camarena took and where he was when he was either abducted or encountered the group of kidnappers. Okay. So, Some of the reports, again, from alleged witnesses, including someone who says that he was actually involved in the kidnapping itself, some of them make it sound like Agent Camarena didn't leave the main exit from the consulate, but instead left through an exit kind of on Libertad that where kind of the visa section is uh, today. Um, if you've watched the YouTube videos, you've seen the, the, the pictures. And then he crossed Libertad towards the Libertad Cafe. That, that's where it is, what it is today. And he was encountered kind of midway across the street. Well, that's very different than other descriptions that say he left the main entrance of the American consulate. And by the way, we've talked about this before. Every single person who's ever had anything to do with the American consulate or knew anything about that time says that's the door everybody left from. Always, always, always. But they'll say, hey, he went across Gresso and Libertad directly to his truck, didn't come close to crossing in the area that's now the Libertad Cafe. That makes a big difference for a whole variety of reasons, including but not limited to who's telling the truth and who's lying, right? So the path that is depicted in um, The Last Narc kind of shows him walk, him being Agent Camarena walking down Libertad um, to the west which I find a little bit unlikely because I think if anything, he was going to go kitty corner, but I really point this out more to, to show 
that that is a big issue, right? That's something that we want to be aware of. And we don't want people to think that exactly as it was depicted here is how it occurred. One of the other things that's interesting is in the last NARC, um, Agent Berea says in his book, The Last NARC, Agent Berea says there were lots of witnesses. And we've said over and over and over that that's not true. Narcos Mexico kind of perpetuates that myth by showing at least um, you know the heads of people witnessing the abduction. Keep in mind that there were very few witnesses, if any, directly to the kidnapping itself, and the you know the alleged or the the kind of witnesses. You know, there was a chauffeur that was walking down the street, saw it, kind of looking backwards, didn't see things. So again, the idea that Agent Camarena was abducted in broad daylight on a busy street with lots of witnesses isn't exactly how it went down. The last point on the actual kidnapping that I, I want to touch on is something I want to be very careful about. Um, there are different thoughts on exactly who approached Agent Camarena how he was approached. We've heard the stories over and over for a long time. And and I think a lot of this started from um, Elaine Shannon's book, Desperados. And so I never want to say that that's inaccurate or incorrect because as we've talked about before, I mean, that's such a foundational document in relation to this case. But what we've heard is somebody walking up saying, hey, Commandant wants to see you. Camarena saying, okay, let me notify my team or my office, and then a gun being pulled, and then he's put in the, in the car. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's exactly how it went down. Here's what I do know. When Kiki Camarena Jr. spoke at a conference that I was at, in last fall in San Antonio, he said that he thought his father knew at least somebody in that abduction group or may have. And I've long suspected that Agent Camarena may have known who El Sammy was. Not that they were buddies or anything, but that he knew who he was. And as a result, the abductors were able to get closer to Agent Cameron than they otherwise might have been able to do. In Narcos, Mexico, you'll note that Agent Cameron says, hey, Sammy, like he knows who he is and that that makes the abduction kind of a quicker process, right? You're closer. You're not going to get away. There are people who knew Agent Camarena, worked with Agent Camarena, who will say that that's not correct, that he didn't know who El Sammy was. And, um, you know, again, those are people whose opinions I highly respect. So I point this one out to note that this is an, another interesting area um, and 
an, an, a continuing avenue for discussion. The truck the next morning, Agent Camarena's truck. This is really, really important for a couple of reasons. The most important of which is remember that in all of the early witness statements, Renee Lopez, Romero, and others, they never mentioned the truck, and they never mentioned the truck being unlocked. Never. That is a critical factor. Remember, we talked about this before. Everybody says he always locked his car. He, you know, he had some pride in his vehicle, etc. Okay. So the fact that these witnesses didn't mention that is significant. I take you back to the scene in Narcos, Mexico, and it shows Jaime Kirkendall coming up. He looks at the car or the truck, the vehicle, which is not, we'll talk about this in just a second. It's not the right vehicle, but that, put that aside. And the door is ajar, okay? not just unlocked, but ajar. And I just want to read to you what Jaime Kirkendall says in his book. And if you haven't picked up his book, you should, because it's it's interesting. So here's what he says about the events. And remember, the events in, in Narcos, Mexico, are showing what Jaime Kirkendall did. And, by the way, I'm also informed that the writers on Narcos, Mexico, at least in season one, all had Jaime's book. So here's what Jaime actually says. The vehicle, a blue 1984, 1985 Ford pickup, should not have been there. Kiki was like a cowboy with his horse. He just didn't like to walk anywhere. He didn't like to ride with anyone else driving. Where others would take a taxi to government offices where parking was scarce, Kiki insisted on driving, even if it meant wasted time in searching for parking. The unexplained presence of the truck without its driver was an ominous indication that something was indeed wrong. Parking near Kiki's truck, I hesitantly approached the vehicle. It has been a long time now, but I still remember how the pickup appeared that morning, keeping a lonely vigil for a man who would never return. The lack of dew under the vehicle indicated that it had not been disturbed during the night. The door was unlocked and the alarm turned off. Kiki had delighted in designing that alarm with all the lights flashing and the horn honking when it was activated. The addition of five yellow clearance lights on the top of the cab helped it appear to be a Mexican-made truck. And he always activated the alarm and locked the doors when he left the truck. Okay, so that's not exactly what you see in Narcos, Mexico, maybe it's a difference without a distinction. Maybe it's not important, but I wanted you to know kind of how it was truly described by Jaime Kirkendall himself. And more importantly, to let you know why, whether or not the door was locked, 
and the alarm activated or not, why that is so important to understanding what really occurred on that afternoon and who really was involved and conversely, who's making stuff up. All right. Want to talk for just a couple seconds about Lope de Vega. That, of course, is the house where Agent Camarena was was taken, where he likely was kept for a day or two, interrogated, tortured, may have been actually murdered there um, before his body was taken someplace else. The... The show, Narcos Mexico, intersperses um, scenes. So at, at sometimes you'll see um, Rafael Caracantero in Costa Rica, and then it goes back to showing some of the torture scenes. That's not exactly right. Remember when Caracantero left. Guadalajara, he first went to Gaborca, then went to Costa Rica, and at most, Agent Camarena was in Lope de Vega for about two days, at most. Okay, So that time frame makes it appear, at least it did to me, kind of those shots going back and forth, as if the torture and the you know, the time that he was being interrogated was much, much longer than it really was. The other thing I want to talk about is Lope de Vega itself. And remember that it wasn't until after Rafael Caro Quintero was brought back from Mexico, or from Costa Rica, excuse me, and after Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo was arrested in Puerto Varda, so that is, it wasn't until April, two months later, that the DEA ever heard about Lope de Vega. That time frame, I think, is really, really interesting and critical for a whole variety of reasons, some of which we're going to talk about next week. Also keep in mind that before the DEA got into Lope de Vega, DFS or somebody working for DFS had basically cleaned, as far as evidentiary value, most of Lope de Vega. Now, I'm told that the kitchen was an absolute disaster and a mess, so I don't mean they cleaned it like housekeeping, but evidence and stuff was gone. And we know that they took bags out of Lope de Vega before the DEA was ever there. Interestingly enough, there were a couple of syringes that were found when the DEA and FBI did their searches. Query why they were left or not picked up, however you want to look at it, but they were still there. We've talked, or I've talked, a lot about Dr. Machine And Narcos Mexico continues the narrative that Dr. Machine was at Lope de Vega, that Dr. Machine injected medication into Agent Camarena in order to keep him alive longer. 
That narrative is out there. Remember, and, and if you want to go back, I did a whole episode just on Dr. Machine. But remember, Dr. Machine was on trial in the federal district court in Los Angeles in front of Judge Rafiti. And the government could not prove its case, couldn't even make out a prima facie case that those allegations were true. And you've heard me rant about Manny Medrano appearing on the last arc, talking about what he did, what Dr. Machine did, knowing full well that he couldn't prove it in court, but he's more than happy to sit there and say it as a fact in a documentary. Same thing here. Again, I'm not criticizing Narcos Mexico. Sure as hell, I'm criticizing the last narc and Manny Medrano. But the the allegations against Dr. Machine are only that. Always keep that in mind, please. All right. Here's the last one I'm going to talk about. There's a couple of different things to talk about with this. And we've discussed this before. There's the great airport confrontation, right? Carl Quintero's getting ready to leave on a jet. DEA and DFS square off, and it's exciting. It's a great scene. Jaime Kirkendall is screaming, you can't let Carl Quintero go. All that stuff. It's a great scene, right? Problem is, that's not how it happened, And I've talked to a couple people who were there while it happened. And as often is the case, real life is much more boring. Even when your DEA agents trying to find who killed or who kidnapped your colleague. And even when you're confronted with Rafael Caracantero getting ready to leave the country. And as we said, you didn't actually immediately leave. But you know what I'm talking about. It's much more boring than that. Now, number one, Narcos Mexico says that they heard on the radio that Carl Quintero was getting ready to flee the country and that they were going to go try to get Carl Quintero. Okay? That's not how it happened. Remember, we've talked about this before. Felix Gallardo's Phones had been tapped, and they were otherwise monitoring communications relating to Felix Gallardo. And at one point, there is something that's intercepted that says, bring money to the airport because uh, the boss needs that, right? It was never known, it was never thought that Carl Quintero was going to be the one at the airport. Instead, the thought was Felix Gallardo was getting ready to leave. The money was being brought to him, and that's kind of who they thought they were going to see when they went to the airport. Also, keep in mind, you've got all these people hopping into cars and driving to the airport. (laughs) Real life is far more interesting with respect to this. It, It might not be as dramatic, but... Remember, most of the people or a lot of the people who were involved in the search for Agent Camarena in the immediate aftermath weren't from Guadalajara. They came from all different places. And the truth of the matter is, 
those that were told to go, hey, go try to you know see what's going on, they were using rental cars and they didn't know how to get to the airport. So what did they do? They hired a taxi to drive to the airport and then they followed the taxi. Which I think is is just a crazy fact. I love it. Who went to the airport? The most important thing here is not who went, but who didn't go. Most importantly, Jaime Kirkendall wasn't there. Right? No matter what you see in the last narc, I'm sorry, in Narcos Mexico, I apologize. In Narcos Mexico, Jaime Kirkendall was not at the airport. Here's something else interesting. The DEA actually got there before Rafael Caro Quintero. And more importantly, they didn't know it was Carl Quintero. Remember, at that time, as they go to the airport, they don't know what Carl Quintero looks like. They don't have a picture of him. Nothing. So what happens is they get there, and there's far less confrontational. There's far less, you know, machismo being exerted than there is in the in Narcos Mexico. But they get there. They're trying to figure out what's going on. And then Carl Quintero and his people come up. And at the time, they said, hey, you know what? That's probably a drug dealer because, you know, <laughs> if it looks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck, that thing. But they didn't know it was Carl Quintero. Some may have guessed it, but they didn't know that. Okay? And, again, far less people. We've talked before about, uh, you know, things that have been said in the past about how many people there were. Hector Breas at one point said there were 50 DFS pointing guns at... at um, the DEA agents, Salva testified that it was eight and that when he first talked about it, there were five. So it, it was far less confrontational. But one thing that's true is that the DEA were definitely outgunned, so to speak. And so there was actually a point where one of the agents calls back to headquarters, you know, where, where people were and says, hey, you know, here's what's going on. And somebody said, stop the plane. Don't know who it is, but stop the plane. And, <laughs> you know, the agent's like, um, we can't. There's no, there's no way that's going to happen. So, you know, lots of little differences, but it's a big deal. It's a big deal to remember that they didn't know who Carl Quintero was. There's this perception that Carl Quintero was, you know, this well-known figure. Everybody knew who he was, his face you know, was on everybody's desktop, and it's just not that way. The last little note, um, and then I'll end this diatribe, is this whole thing at the end where Caro Quintero steps out of the, the plane and says, you know, next time my children bring better toys or something along those lines, and then he shoots his AK-47 into the air, and then they leave. People I've talked to who were there say two things. One is that that statement, you know, my children, blah, 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 which has been repeated over and over and over and over, 
People I've talked to have said they don't remember that being said. Not saying it didn't happen, but they don't remember it. But this idea that he shot the gun in the air, false. They, they say that absolutely didn't happen. So take that for what you will. I also think it's important to note in the depiction in Narcos Mexico, Pavon Reyes is a co-conspirator. He knows it's Rafael Caro Quintero, etc. He clearly got paid off. I think we all agree to that. I think it's highly unlikely that he, or it's it's entirely possible that he also didn't know who was on the plane. Right? He didn't know it was Caro Quintero. He knew it was somebody who had DFS credentials and somebody who was going to pay him a whole lot of money to let him go. But the idea, again, that everybody knew it was Caro Quintero may or may not have actually been the case. All right. That's going to end our discussion of Narcos Mexico and the issues that I wanted to point out in order to kind of set the record straight, not to criticize Narcos Mexico, but to make sure that when we talk about the Camarena case in the future, we're able to separate Dramatic license, dramatic effect, things we saw on TV from actual fact. Okay. So with that, going to end today. Next week, we are going to do something that um, a listener suggested, and I like. And we're going to look at different theories on who ordered the kidnapping. And I think you'll find this interesting. So take a look at that for that next week. Um, as always, check out the YouTube channel if you'd like. We've got some new things on there. Trying to focus a little bit more on current events on the YouTube channel. Um, just because I think that that's a nice way to split up what we do here and what we do there. Sometimes we'll show things on the YouTube channel that we also talk about in this podcast because I can show pictures and things and it makes it a little bit easier. Uh, and with that, have a great week. This has been Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. Take care.